Welcome to Queer Quips, presented by Standby for Places. I'm your host, Angela Mansberry. Today I'm going to be talking with a few of my favorite people. First, let's speak with Tennessee Williams, who has a new book out which includes a graphic accounting of his sex life and a somewhat more reticent exploration of his artistic life. The emphasis is too heavy on sexual things. It will offend a lot of people. The publisher was hoping I would write more about the plays. Instead, I even forgot one or two. I found it difficult to write about writing. Some people write about it, I just do it. I thought my plays exist for people to see. My life is more or less expressed in them. Art is private. How would you say your life and writing overlap? Sexuality is a basic part of my nature. I never considered my homosexuality as anything to be disguised. Neither did I consider it a matter to be overemphasized. I consider it an accident of nature. My life was a series of little adventures unconsummated before I was 28. It was after I went to New Orleans that I selected homosexuality as a way of sexual life. Lucky for me, I made the decision. The decision was made for me. I'm not a sex maniac. I ain't. I like romanticism in sex. I insist on it. I can't enjoy it without romanticism. And what do you have to say about your relationships with women? All of my relationships with women are very, very important to me. The most stupid thing said about my writing is that my heroines are disguised transvestites. Absolutely and totally none of them are anything but women. It's true about my work, and it's true about Albies in Virginia Woolf. I understand women, and I can write about them. It's true, my heroines often speak for me. That doesn't make them transvestites. Playwrights always have somebody speak for them. I think that more often I have used a woman rather than a man to articulate my feelings. It's bad criticism to say, I can't put an authentic female character on stage. A true faggot does not like my women. I do not have a faggot, a homosexual, a gay audience. I write for an audience. No living person doesn't contain both sexes. Mine could have been either one. Truly, I have two sides to my nature. I could not operate freely as a writer having several wives and a family. Do you think your homosexuality has influenced your writing? I think it matters, but I'm not sure. To ad-lib an answer would be dangerous. Part two of my memoirs will deal very much with that problem. One cannot exclude the important influence of sexuality. Are the women in your plays based on the women in your life? Oh my god, yes. In my early plays, I created from my family. My sister, mother, my father's sister. Blanche is really my Aunt Belle. She was a Sunday school teacher in the South. I have based Blanche on her personality, not on her life. She was the prototype of Blanche. She talked like Blanche hysterically with great eloquence. Aunt Belle was childless. She married someone much older. She died at 28. An infected wisdom tooth killed her. She taught me how to swim. I was 14, my sister 16, 
and I was afraid of the water. She also bought me my first pair of long pants. My father never gave my mother enough money. And Belle bought my sister beautiful dresses. My sister was so popular. The summer of 1926 was a wonderful summer. Where do you get your ideas? Do they come from experience? I can only write about what I experience, intuitively or existentially. What is your process? The best things are written usually under artificial stimulants. Aside from the true stimulant of my deep-rooted need to continue to write. Stimulants? Martinis and barbiturates dissolve any blocks. They liberate my unconscious. You write from the unconscious, material stored. I would inject myself and shoot straight up from the bed to the typewriter. I would write like a blue blaze. The next day, I would subject the writing to scrutiny. I'm not an addictive person, I'm very careful. I, I don't take grass or hard drugs. I take what the doctor tells me to take. If my work was done, I would go back to smoking opium. When I tried it, I did so without instruction. I did not know how much to dissolve in my tea. I took a massive overdose. If I ever go back to the Orient, I would try it with a pipe. When a man is old and dead with life, they give him opium. It's a good way to end. I suspect that I will end my life as a woman, with a woman. Do you have someone in mind? No, but the people who care for me most are women. Perhaps that's always been true. A woman's face with nature's own hand painted hast thou the master mistress of my passion. A woman's gentle heart, but not acquainted with shifting change as is false women's fashion. An eye more bright than theirs, less false in rolling, gilding the object whereupon it gazeth. A man in hue, all hues in his controlling, which steals men's eyes and women's souls amazeth. And for a woman wert thou first created, till nature as she wrought thee fell a-doting, and by addition me of thee defeated. By adding one thing to my purpose, nothing. But since she pricked thee out for women's pleasure, mine be thy love and thy love's use, their treasure. My own dear boy, your sonnet is quite lovely. And it is a marvel that those red rose leaf lips of yours should be made no less for the madness of music and song than for the madness of kissing. Your slim gilt soul walks between passion and poetry. I know Hyacinthus, whom Apollo loved so madly, was you. Greek days. Why are you alone in London, and when do you go to Salisbury? Do go there to call your hands in the great twilight of Gothic things, and come here whenever you like. It is a lovely place and lacks only you, but go to Salisbury first. Always with undying love, yours, Oscar.
March 1893, Savoy Hotel. Dearest of all boys, your letter was delightful, red and yellow wine to me, but I am sad and out of sorts. Those of you must not make scenes with me. They kill me. They wreck the loveliness of life. I cannot see you so Greek and gracious, distorted with passion. I cannot listen to your curved lips saying hideous things to me. I would sooner be blackmailed by every renter in London than to have you bitter, unjust, hating. You are the divine thing I want. Think of grace and beauty. I don't know how to do it. Shall I come to Salisbury? My bill here is 49 pounds for a week. I've also got a new sitting room over the Thames. Why are you not here, my dear, my wonderful boy? I fear I must leave. No money, no credit. And a heart of lead. Your own, Oscar. April 28th, 1885. My dearest boy, this is to assure you of my immortal, my eternal love for you. Tomorrow all will be over. If prison and dishonor be my destiny, think that my love for you and this idea, this still more divine belief that you love me in return will sustain me in my unhappiness and will make me capable, I hope, of bearing my grief most patiently, since the hope, nay, rather the certainty of meeting you again in some world is the goal and the encouragement of my present life. Ah, I must continue to live in this world because of that. Lock the doors, lower the blinds, fire up the smoke machine, and put on your heels, honey, because Truman Capote is here. Hey, girl. So which which is more powerful, do you think? Friendship or love? Well, actually, I think friendship and love are exactly the same thing. How do you mean? Well, obviously, sex is not love. I mean, it's a temporary situation, isn't it? I mean, sex can lead to love, obviously, but friendship, real friendship, inevitably leads to love. But then one doesn't have that many friends in a lifetime. But if friendship leads to love, does it normally lead to sex too? No. Friendship lead to sex? <laughs> no, friendship. Once it's gone to love, it ought to. In a perfect world, it would, but no, when friendship is gone to love, does it always lead to sex? Mm, friendship gone to love, will it always? No. You don't seem to have a very high opinion of sex, do you, really? Well, that's not true either, but um, I just don't see what, uh, what connection this really follows. You see, I don't think that sex has anything to do with friendship. I think that it's very difficult to have a sexual relationship with someone who actually is a friend. When I do have a sexual fantasy, usually I, I try to transfer it into reality, sometimes successfully. However, I do often find myself drifting into erotic daydreams that remain just that, daydreams. 
I remember once having a conversation on this subject with Ian Forster, to my mind, the finest English novelist of this century. He said that as a schoolboy, sexual thoughts dominated his mind. He said, I felt as I grew older, this fever would lessen, even leave me. But that was not the case. It raged on through my 20s, and I thought, well, surely by the time I'm 40, I will receive some release from this torment, this constant search for the perfect love object. But it was not to be. All through my 40s, lust was always lurking inside my head. And then I was 50, and then I was 60, and nothing changed. Sexual images continued to spin around my brain like figures on a carousel. Now, here I am in my 70s, and I'm still a prisoner of my sexual imagination. I'm stuck with it just at an age when I can no longer do anything about it. When, in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble death's heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate. Wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope with what I enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising happily, I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings him that heaven's gate, for thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with king. Seventh of August, nineteen forty one. Sex, to me, should be a religion. I have no other. I feel no other urge to devotion to something. And we all need a devotion to something besides ourselves, besides even our noblest ambitions. I could be content without fulfillment. Perhaps I should be better off in such an arrangement. 24th of September, 1943. Sexual love is the only emotion which has ever really touched me. Hatred, jealousy, even abstract devotion, never. Except devotion to myself. But love touched me willy-nilly. 16th of October, 1941. On the grudgingness of my chosen partners and my consequent low estimation of myself, I believe this self-deprecation partly due to my evil thoughts of murder of my stepfather, for example, when I was eight or less. Also the realized taboo of homosexuality, my realization even at six and at eight that I dared not speak my love. And of course this persisted with its adult ramifications of social life, guilt. Unfortunate that this is so buried for consciously I am not in the least ashamed of homosexuality, and if I were normal and equally imaginative, I should probably consider it very interesting to be homosexual, and wish I had the experience. Attitude toward money and in the twenties on my own, and recent one of overspending and carelessness. Also toward food during these years, 
saving part of anything, living like a rat. Self-deprecation. Lack of food intake in adolescence to get attention of parents, also to punish myself for sex reasons, etc. 3rd of April, 1961. The pattern of quarrels and reconciliations in the very first days of a relationship, however minor the quarrels then, is the pattern that will prevail throughout, grow bigger perhaps, become insufferable perhaps. The story of MJ and myself, off to a crippled start, the brainwashing, the rivalry between two in the same profession, the desperate efforts of one to best the other, and the other's efforts to preserve the relationship at any cost. And at the same time saying, why am I in this? I'm intelligent enough to see I must get out. But what is there, out? The same sort of relationship with someone else? Better to stick it out and to try, say, all the marriage counselors, all the psychologists, in regard to heterosexual relationships. 14th of May, 1961. Homosexuals prefer one another's company not so much because of a common sexual deviance from what is socially accepted, but because they know that they have all been through the same hell, the same trials, the same depressions, and those who meet have survived. Those not present have killed themselves, or have managed or decided or were able to conform. Homosexuals' friendships or acquaintanceships may appear to be superficial, may be superficial in fact, but that underlying bond remains, and they are blood brothers and sisters because of what they have suffered. 17th of May, 1973. Marriage is the easiest way of avoiding sleeping with a man. Tangier, Wednesday, 10th of May, 1967. Weather very bad, cloudy, pleasant to walk around. We met Bill on the boulevard. He looked very happy having had another sailor. Kenneth and I went down to the windmill and I was going to have Mohammed again. Only Kenneth said, Larrabee is coming at four for tea. I shall not want him, so you can have him. So I gave Mohammed a couple dirham, though I much would have preferred to have had him. We went back to the flat, we had tea, and Ken and Larrabee went into the bedroom. I had a couple of Librium tablets and switched all the lights out in the saloon and laid on a leopard skin couch and dozed off. When Ken came back, they had sex. I arranged for you to have him tomorrow, I said. I really wish you wouldn't play the Procurus quite so much. I am quite capable of managing my own sex. Kenneth then went into the bedroom to put on his tie and I sat next to Larrabee and kissed him. We then laid on the couch. I put my hand between his legs and felt his ass, to which he had no objection. We will make a more tomorrow, he said. I nodded, excited by the prospect, yet wondering how to put one another off. And now we're going to close out the show with a conversation with Mr. James Baldwin. Mr. Baldwin. Do you feel like a stranger in gay America? Well, first of all, I feel like a stranger in America from almost every conceivable angle except, oddly enough, as a black person. The word gay has always rubbed me the wrong way. I never understood exactly what is meant by it. I don't want to sound distant or patronizing because I don't really feel that. I simply feel it's a word that has very little to do with me, with where I did my growing up. I was never at home in it. 
Even in my early years in the village, what I saw that world absolutely frightened me, bewildered me. I didn't understand the necessity of all the role-playing, and in a way, I still don't. You never thought of yourself as being gay? No. I didn't have a word for it. The only one I had was homosexual, and that didn't quite cover whatever it was I was beginning to feel. Even when I began to realize things about myself, began to suspect who I was and what I was likely to become, it was still very personal, absolutely personal. It was really a matter between me and God. I would have to live the life he had made me to live, and I told him quite a long, long time ago there would be two of us at the mercy seat. He would not be asking all the questions. When did you begin to think of yourself in those terms? It hit me with a great force while I was in the pulpit. I must have been 14. I was still a virgin. I had no idea what you were supposed to do about it. I didn't really understand any of what I felt except I knew I loved one boy, for example. But it was private. And by the time I left home, when I was 17 or 18 and, and still a virgin, it was like everything else in my life, a problem which I would have to resolve myself. You know, it never occurred to me to join a club. I must say I felt very, very much alone. But I was alone on so many levels, and this was one more aspect of it. So when we talk about gay life, which is so group-oriented, so tribal... And I am not that kind of person at all. Do you feel baffled by it? I feel remorse from it. It's a phenomenon that came along much after I was formed. In some sense, I couldn't have afforded it. You see, I am not a member of anything. I joined the church when I was very, very young and haven't joined anything since except for a brief stint in the Socialist Party. I'm a maverick, you know. But that doesn't mean I don't feel very strongly for my brothers and sisters. Do you have a special feeling of responsibility toward gay people? Toward that phenomenon we call gay, yeah. I feel special responsibility because I would have to be a kind of witness to it, you know? You're one of the architects of it by the act of writing about it publicly and elevating it into the realm of literature. I made a public announcement that we're private, if you see what I mean. When I consider what at risk it might have been to write about homosexuality the way you did. You're talking about Giovanni's room. Yeah, that was rough, but I had to do it to clarify something for myself. What was that? Where I was in the world. I mean, what I'm made of. Anyway, Giovanni's room is not really about homosexuality. It's the vehicle through which the book moves. Go Tell It on the Mountain, for example, is not about a church, and Giovanni is not really about homosexuality. It's about what happens to you if you're afraid to love anybody, which is much more interesting than the question of homosexuality. But you didn't mask the sexuality. No. That, that decision alone must have been enormously risky. Yeah, the alternative was worse. What would that have been? If I hadn't written the book, I would probably have had to stop writing altogether. It was that serious. It is that serious. The question of human affection, of integrity, in my case the question of trying to become a writer, are all linked with the question of sexuality. Sexuality is only a part of it. I don't know even if it's the most important part, but it's indispensable. Did people advise you to not write the book so candidly? I didn't ask anybody. When I turned the book in, I was told I shouldn't have written it. I was told to bear in mind that I was a young Negro writer with a certain audience, and I wasn't supposed to alienate that audience. And if I published the book, it would wreck my career. 
they wouldn't publish the book, they said, as a favor to me. So I took the book to England and I sold it there before I sold it here. Do you think your unresolved sexuality motivated you at the start to write? Yeah. Well, everything was unresolved. The sexual thing was only one of the things. It was, for a while, the most tormenting thing, and it could have been the most dangerous. How so? Well, because it frightened me so much. I don't think straight people realize how frightening it is to finally admit to yourself that this is going to be you forever. It's very frightening. But the so-called straight person is no safer than I am, really. Loving anybody and being loved by anybody is a tremendous danger, a tremendous responsibility. Loving of children, raising of children, the terrors homosexuals go through in this society would not be so great if the society itself did not go through so many errors which it doesn't want to admit. The discovery of one's sexual preference doesn't have to be a trauma. It's a trauma because it's such a traumatized society. I think we can agree there's a retrenchment going on in race relations. Do you sense that happening also in sex relations? There's what we would have to call a backlash, which I'm afraid is just beginning. I suppose most gay people have fantasies about genocide. Well, it's not a fantasy exactly, since the society makes its will toward you very, very clear. Especially the police, for example, or truck drivers. I know from my own experience that the macho men, truck drivers, cops, football players, these people are far more complex than they want to realize. That's why I call them infantile. They have needs which for them are literally inexpressible. They don't dare look in the mirror, and that is why they need faggots. They've created faggots in order to act out a sexual fantasy on the body of another man and not take any responsibility for it. Do you see what I mean? I think it's very important for the male homosexual to recognize that he is a sexual target for other men, and that is why he is despised, and why he is called a faggot. He is called a faggot because other males need him. Why do you think homophobia falls so often on the right of the political spectrum? It's a way of controlling people. Nobody really cares who goes to bed with whom, finally. I mean, the state doesn't really care. The church doesn't really care. They care that you should be frightened of what you do. As long as you feel guilty about it, the state can rule you. It's a way of exerting control over the universe by terrifying people. Why don't black ministers need to share in this rhetoric? Perhaps because they're more grown up than most white ministers. Did you ever hear anti-gay rhetoric in church? Not in the church I grew up in. I'm sure that's still true. Everyone is a child of God according to us. Didn't people ever call you a faggot uptown? Of course. But there's a difference in the way it's used. It's got less venom, at least in my experience. I don't know of anyone who has ever denied his brother or sister because they were gay. No doubt it happens, it must happen. But in the generality, a black person has got quite a lot to get through the day without getting entangled in all the American fantasies. Do black people have the same sense of being gay as white people do? I mean, I feel distinct from other white people. Well, that, I think, is because you are penalized, as it were, unjustly. You're placed outside a certain safety to which you think you were born. A black gay person who is a sexual conundrum to society is already, long before the question of sexuality comes into it, menaced and marked. Because he's black or she's black. The sexual question comes after the question of color. It's simply one more aspect of the danger in which all black people live. I think white gay people feel cheated because they were born, in principle, into a society in which they were supposed to be safe. 
The anomaly of their sexuality puts them in danger unexpectedly. Their reaction seems to me in direct proportion to the sense of feeling cheated of the advantages which accrue to white people in a white society. There's an element, it has always seemed to me, of bewilderment and complaint. Now that may sound very harsh, but the gay world is as such no more prepared to accept black people than anywhere else in society. It's a very hermetically sealed world with very unattractive features, including racism. Are you optimistic about the possibility of blacks and gays forging a political coalition? Do you see any special basis for empathy between us? Yeah. Yeah, of course. What would that be? Well, the basis would be shared suffering, shared perceptions, shared hopes. What perceptions do we share? I suppose one would be the perception that love is where you find it, if you see what I mean. Or where you lose it, for that matter. Mm-hmm. But are gay people sensitized by the perceptions we share with blacks? Not in my experience, no. So I guess you're not very hopeful about that kind of coalition as something that could make a difference in urban politics. It's simply that the whole question has entered my mind another way. I know a great many white people, men and women, straight and gay, whatever, who are unlike the majority of their countrymen. On what basis we could form a coalition is still an open question. The idea of basing it on sexual preference strikes me as somewhat dubious strikes me as being less than a firm foundation. It seems to me that a coalition has to be based on the grounds of human dignity. Anyway, what connects us, speaking about the private life, is mainly unspoken. I sometimes think gay people look to black people as healing them. Not only gay people. Healing their alienation. That has to be done, first of all, by the person, and then you will find your company. When I hear Jesse Jackson speak before a gay audience, I wanted him to say there wasn't any sin, that I was forgiven. Is that a question for you still? That question of sin? I think it must be on some level, even though I'm not a believer. How peculiar. I didn't realize you thought of it as sin. Do many gay people feel that? <laughs> I don't know. I guess throwing something at you, which is the idea that gays look to blacks as conferring a kind of acceptance by embracing them in a coalition. I find it unavoidable to think in those terms. When I fantasize about a black mayor or a black president, I think about it being better for gay people. Well, don't be romantic about black people. Though I can see what you mean. Do you think black people have a heightened capacity for tolerance, even acceptance in its truest sense? Well, there is a capacity in black people for experience, simply. And that capacity makes other things possible. It dictates the depth of one's acceptance of other people. The capacity for experience is what burns out fear. Because the homophobia we're talking about really is a kind of fear. It's a terror of flesh. It's really a terror of being able to be touched. Do you think about having children? Not anymore. It's one thing I really regret. Maybe the only regret I have. But I couldn't have managed it then. Now it's too late but you're not disturbed by the idea of gay men being parents. Look, men have been sleeping with men for thousands of years and raising tribes. This is a Western sickness, it really is. It's an artificial division. Men will be sleeping with each other when the trumpet sounds. It's only this infantile culture which has made such a big deal of it. So you think of homosexuality as universal? Of course. There's nothing in me that is not in everybody else, and nothing in everybody else that is not in me. We're trapped in language, of course, but homosexual is not a noun. 
at least not in my book. What part of speech would it be? Perhaps a verb. You see, I can only talk about my own life. I loved a few people and they loved me. It had nothing to do with these labels. Of course, the world has all kinds of words for us, but that's the world's problem. Is it problematic for you, the idea of having sex with other people who are identified as gay? Well, you see, my life has not been like that at all. The people who were my lovers were never... Well, the word gay wouldn't have meant anything to them. That means that they have moved in the straight world. They moved in the world. Do you think of the gay world as being a false refuge? I think perhaps it imposes a limitation which is unnecessary. It seems to me simply a man is a man, a woman is a woman, and who they go to bed with is nobody's business but theirs. I suppose what I am really saying is that one's sexual preference is a private matter. I resent the interference of the state or the church or any institution in my only journey to whatever it is we are journeying toward. But it has been made a public question by the institution of this country. I can see how the gay world comes out in response to that. And to contradict myself, I suppose, or more precisely, I hope that it is easier for the transgressor to become reconciled with himself or herself than it was for many people in my generation. And it was difficult for me. It is difficult to be despised, in short. And if the so-called gay movement can cause men and women, boys and girls to come to some kind of terms with themselves more speedily and with less pain, then that's a very great advance. I'm not sure it can be done on that level. My own point of view, speaking out of black America, when I had to try to answer that stigma, that species of social curse, it seemed a great mistake to answer in the language of the oppressor. As long as I react as a nigger, as long as I protest my case on evidence or assumptions held by others, I'm simply reinforcing those assumptions. As long as I complain about being oppressed, the oppressor is in consolation of knowing that I know my place, so to speak. You will always come forward and make the statement that you're homosexual. You will never hide it or deny it. And yet you refuse to make a life out of it. Yeah. That sums it up pretty well. That strikes me as a balance that might want to look to in a climate where that's possible. One has to make that climate for oneself. Do you have good fantasies about the future? I have good fantasies and bad fantasies. What are some of the good ones? Oh, that I am working toward the new Jerusalem. That's true, I'm not joking. I won't live to see it, but I do believe in it. I think we're going to be better than we are. What do you think gay people will be like then? No one will have to call themselves gay. Maybe that's at the bottom of my impatience with the term. It answers a false argument, a false accusation. Which is what? Which is that you have no right to be here. That you have to prove your right to be here. I'm saying I have nothing to prove. The world also belongs to me. What advice would you give gay men who's about to come out? Coming out means to publicly say? I guess I'm imposing those terms on you. Yeah, they're not my terms. But what advice can you possibly give? Best advice I ever got was an old friend of mine, a black friend, who said, You have to go the way your blood beats. If you don't live the only life you have, you won't live some other life. You won't live any life at all. That's the only advice you can give anybody. And it's not advice, it's an observation. All right, folks, well, that is our show. 
Be sure to tip your bartenders and be sure to support local queer establishments and queer artists in celebration of Pride Month. Tonight we have Franco Pettuccini as Tennessee Williams, Chris French doing Shakespeare's Sonnet Number no. 20, Michael Iannucci as Oscar Wilde, Wynne Harmon as Truman Capote, Kyle Mara doing Shakespeare's Sonnet 29, Alexandra Kopko as Patricia Highsmith, Larry Phillips as Joe Orton, Torian Brackett as James Baldwin, and Graydon Gunn putting this all together. I'm your host, Angela Mansbury. Thank you and good night. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Without you, we wouldn't be able to continue bringing content to audiences all over the world. For exclusive interviews, behind-the-scenes content, and even more radio shows, consider becoming a patron today. All links are available at our website at standbyforplaces.com.